if all you knew of Star Wars, if all you knew of Star, after watching episodes four, five, and six, if all that you knew of what had happened in a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, if all you knew was out of what was shown to you on a screen in 1983, you might think that with the Death Star destroyed, with the Empire defeated, with the Rebel Alliance now victorious, you might think that all was well. Okay, that was 1983. Fast forward now to 2015. It's now episode 7, The Force Awakens, right? And then you come to realize, wait, apparently not not all was as great and tidied up as I thought it was. The... uh, the New Republic is, uh, is struggling. Resources stretched way too thin. Uh, the First Order is, is on the rise, right? It would seem that not all was finished. Not all was done. It wasn't enough just to celebrate the victory. It wasn't enough just to hear that it had been won that some, some action, some steps needed to be taken uh, from that, that point forward. Last week, last week we heard news of a victory. Easter Sunday, the greatest news of the greatest victory ever. And you may remember what we were looking at was that in Christ we have a new past and a new present and a new future. The question is, what do we do with that news? Do we just sit on it? What is the significance of that news? Where do we go from here? Well, there's a lot of different passages in the Scriptures to to go to in answer to that question. But for this morning, where we're going is Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. If you want to turn there in your Bible now, uh, look there with me. We're about to read it. Uh, This is a a letter that Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus. Uh, He's in prison. It's about five years or so after he's planted that church. Uh, So a bit has happened, certainly, there in the church as it has grown and spread, and others have been planted, likely, uh, there in the area. Uh, If you're trying to find this, by the way, this is New Testament. After the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, uh, Acts, Romans, 1 and 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians. Okay, so Ephesians is where we are. It comes before Philippians and Colossians. Ephesians chapter 1 This is following right on the heels of a... It's actually one long sentence there in the Greek in verses 3 through 14, okay? So it's after this long sentence of what Paul has just unpacked, just this doxological introduction in terms of what God has done for us in Christ, these spiritual blessings that the believer has, the follower of Jesus has because of what he's done, because of our union with him. And then with that, Paul... This is where he goes, okay? So starting in verse 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, 
according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named not only in this age but also in the age the one to come and he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church which is his body the fullness of him who fills all in all well, let's pray together lord what soaring language what soaring thoughts uh, what paul is saying here what he's praying for here we can hardly keep up with him uh, he goes so high and so deep. We, we ask, though, that you would help us because <laughs> what he's praying for, those folks there in Ephesus, uh, we need ourselves uh, as we live in this resurrection reality. And so we ask that you'd help us to hear. Oh, Holy Spirit, would you please move within, within us all, within us all here in this room right now. We pray in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. So I mentioned a relatively more recent uh, sci-fi tale. Let me go with a little bit older one. So Journey to the Center of the Earth. Jules Verne published, first published, 1864. Okay, This is a classic of science fiction and really set the tone for a whole lot of things that, that came after that. Uh, the basic plot line has to do with this eccentric German scientist, uh, Otto Lidenbrock, who has a theory, and his theory is that you can reach the center of the earth by going down these volcanic tubes. And so he gets his, his nephew and their Icelandic guide, and they rappel down these, these tubes, and, and there they, uh, they discover all kinds of things. They go through all kinds of ad adventures and misadventures, as you can imagine. That's why it's a long book. Cave-ins and polar tornadoes. I don't know how that, but anyway, uh, subterranean oceans and prehistoric creatures. They encounter all of this, and eventually they're spewed out of the center of the earth through another volcano that opens up in Italy. Now, Verne did not act, he didn't create, well, he didn't create this idea whole cloth. There'd been other tales kind of along these lines of going down into the depths of, of the earth. And certainly, there have been, in, I won't say literally innumerable, but you get the idea, innumerable uh, spinoffs and takes from his original tale back in 1864. The idea being that it would seem that this is tapping into something. It, it seems that there's a certain fascination with exploring what's down there in the inner recesses of the globe, the earth. It seems that there is a, a uh, we have an, an intuitive sense that there is more to be found as we go down deep. Paul wants us to go down deep. He wants us to, stop, to not stay at the surface. He wants us to go down deep, deep in our relationship with God. And we see that very plainly here in this passage. He receives news, news of the faith and love of his readers. He then shifts immediately to giving thanks to the only one that was due such thanks, the Lord himself, for that faith and love. But Paul is not content. Yes, there's a, such a thing as a holy discontentment. He is not satisfied that his readers stay just at that point of initial faith and love. He wants to see them grow. He wants to see them grow in their understanding, experience of this faith and love. And so he prays. 
He prays and he tells them what he's praying for. And that's what we have a record for here in the text that we read just a moment ago, which has some relevance for us. Given what we can see, thinking in terms of Easter resurrection reality, given what lies before us, given what God has done for us in Christ, given the the temporal significance, given the eternal significance of the resurrection, we shouldn't be satisfied either to stay on the surface. We shouldn't be content either to just stay on the surface, just kind of checking a box with an intellectual acknowledgement of certain deep spiritual things. The basic idea of the text is given what lies before us, we must go deeper. We must go deeper. Now, how do we see this in the passage? Well, this is a very un-Presbyterian outline. It's a two-point outline, not a three, so sorry. If you're hoping for a third, I don't know. We don't have an evening service. But um, you can see it in two ways. The burden of Paul's heart expressed so clearly here and, and the focus of his prayers. You see the need to go deep and the burden of Paul's heart and the, the focus of his prayers. So let's look at this together. First, the burden of the apostle's heart. I'm going to read again, verse, starting in verse 15 down through the first part of verse 18. For this reason... Because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. And then he goes on from there so to, 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 to what? Okay, so what is he talking about? What, what does he mean when he speaks of a kind of wisdom and revelation and knowledge? We need to understand this is a personal, relational knowledge. It's clear even in the Greek, especially in, in, in the Greek, the, the wording that, that is used here. But you can just see it here in the English as well. It's a personal, relational knowledge. There's a fullness to it here. There's an intimacy to it here. This is not stopping with theoretical, theological knowledge. Not stopping with the head, but going into the heart. It is the difference between having a Facebook friend and a spouse. It's the difference with understanding and being able to explain, even exhaustively, the chemical composition of honey and experiencing its sweetness. Two vastly different things. And Paul is speaking here of that personal, relational knowledge. That's what he wants for his readers, that they would experience that and sink their roots down in it. Now, okay, that's what it means. How does it come? Well, it's plain from the passage. I mean, you know, just the fact he's praying for it and then some of his wording. It, it, we it see clearly here, it's not just through information. Paul does not pray. He does not ask. He does not petition that a, a cartload of scrolls be delivered to their house or that a, a, a fantastic speaker would light up their town. He doesn't ask for more information. He asks for illumination. He asks that the eyes of their hearts might be enlightened, that they might see. It's something that is a work of the Holy Spirit that can only be received, this enlightening. That's how this relational, intimate knowledge with God comes to his people. Okay, that's great. That's how it comes. Why is it needed? So what? Why is this needed? Because of the reality of the counterfeit. 
I was leafing through my grandfather's copy of Knowing God and looking at some of his highlights just this past week. J.I. Packer's classic, Knowing God. And, and I was reminded even in some of what Packer was, was saying there back in 1973, there's a huge difference between knowing a lot about God and knowing God himself. There is a huge, you can, you can know a lot about God and not know God at all. You can know a lot about godliness and not know God at all. And that's not what Paul is after here. That's not his desire at all. And, and so there's the reality of the counterfeit and the delusion, the delusion of the counterfeit, because when you're caught in that web, when you're caught in that trap, you can't see it. You think it's enough, and you're okay to settle for that. And so Paul, this is the burden of his heart that we would know God. Know God. That's the, clearly the burden here. This, was, this is born out of Paul's own experience. Not just what he had seen with others around him, though that was certainly the case. You think in terms of the, you know, what you read of in Acts and his letters in terms of the violent collision that he had with some of the Jewish authorities, right, in the synagogues and in Jerusalem. But it's not, this is not just Paul understood the, the delusion and the danger and the reality of the counterfeit just by looking at people around him. He knew it from his own story. You know, Paul was not always known as Paul. He used to be Saul, Saul the Pharisee. He was the best of the best. Even, even the scholars who are looking outside the New Testament can see that we probably would know, even if Paul had never become Paul the Apostle, we would probably know something still today of Saul the Pharisee because of what a figure he was at that time in that, that part of the world. But he didn't stay there. But, but look with me. Uh, we've, I think we've got the slides uh, to, to go here. Acts chapter 8. So let's go back. Let's rewind in Paul's story just a little bit to see where he was when he was a very zealous man, a very, very zealous man, knew a lot about God. But in Romans, Paul says that he, this, this zeal is what could be called a zeal without knowledge, knowledge in that deep sense. So in Acts chapter 8, verses 1 to 3, Saul, starting in verse 1, Saul approved of his execution. Now, that's a reference to Stephen, Stephen, one of the leaders in the church. And there's Saul, yeah, man, cheering it on. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. They were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made lamentation over him. But Saul, now you just get the contrast here. So you have devout men lamenting Stephen's death, but that's in contrast to Saul. And Luke, the writer of Acts, is pointing it out. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now, fast forward over the course of chapter 8 and what takes place there, and you get to the beginning of chapter 9, and you have a shift in the plot. Acts 9, starting in verse 1. But Saul, this is after Philip, this is after his work, his conversation, dialogue with this man from Ethiopia, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if, any, if he found any belonging to the way, now that's a 
old way of referring to the early church, the Christian movement, uh, the way. Any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? See, he doesn't even know, such as the shallow level of his intimacy, his knowledge of God, he has to ask the question, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The man had to be knocked off his horse, knocked to the ground, to get it, to see by Jesus himself. Such was the level of his zeal, the problem, the the danger, the delusion of this zeal without knowledge, the reality of the counterfeit, the need for this Holy Spirit-worked intimacy. So that brings us, before we shift to the second point, that brings us to some very uncomfortable questions that we need to be wrestling with here this morning and be honest before the Lord about. Are we first willing to acknowledge the difference. Can we just start there? Are we willing to acknowledge the difference between knowing about God and knowing God? Are we willing to just acknowledge that there is a difference? You have to start there. Are we willing to acknowledge that there is a difference? And if we're, okay, let's assume we're willing to acknowledge that difference. Are we willing to acknowledge the possibility that there could be a deficit in our own knowledge of who he is between the intellectual and the heart level? Are we willing to acknowledge that it could be a really a terrible deficit in, in our lives here, such as there was possibly even in Saul's life? Are we willing to enter what I'll call the dangerous space of a relationship with the living God? Now, I call it a dangerous place because it's dangerous to be in an intimate, close relationship with anybody anybody. It's a dangerous thing to be in close relationship, even with a human being, because they're going to get to, they're going to see you. And as they see you, they're going to get to know you. That's scary. And yes, they may affirm you, but they may they may challenge you as well. You see why this is scary? It's scary just to be in a relationship with a human being. Now let's talk about a relationship with the one that Paul, here in Ephesians 1.17, describes as the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory. You think that's safe? No. No, not at all. I mean, and there's the, old, the old hymn speaks of, the, oh, love who will not let me go. That's the love of God who will not let me go. Now, that's great in the sense of, yes, the assurance that he's, he's ours and we are his. That's true. But think with me about a dog with a bone that will not let go, a surgeon who refuses to stop prematurely. one who will not let go. Are you willing, am I willing, are we willing to enter into relationship, the place of, a scary place of relationship with the true and living God? 
that's the apostle's burden for us, that we would know God, but that's what it entails. So given, given what lies before us, given these resurrection realities, yes, we need to go deeper. Okay, that's the burden of the apostle's heart. Let's to go now into the focus of his prayers. Uh, three times we see this. This is verses uh, 18 and following. Three, th- three times we see it set up. There's three different aspects to what he's praying for, set up and introduced by the word what. Okay? And I'll, I'll show you as we go. But what Paul has in mind is that we would grow in our experience of things that are already ours. That we would grow in our experience of things that are, and, and, and understanding and, and, and lived out experience of those things that are already ours. And the first thing is the hope of God's call. So verse 18. I'll pick it up because it's halfway through the middle of a sentence. This, again, is one long sentence, this text this morning uh, in, in the original. Uh, Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is, here we go, what is the hope to which he has called you. Now, this is actually going back to the beginning. This is a, a past reference, the hope to which he has called you. Going back to how did this, this relationship even start by God's calling by his gracious initiative, by his wooing us, drawing us to himself. We were once without a hope, once without any hope whatsoever, and his call comes, and now we are the people of, we are the, we're now the people of hope. And you think in terms of what that calling entails, so many different examples of that, but just thinking in terms of even just the book of Ephesians, we see that that call has to do with the call to follow Christ, the call to Christ-likeness, to the call to... Um, a new identity to holiness, a call to freedom from the condemnation of the law, a call to fellowship with others that transcends all that would otherwise separate us in terms of class or language or culture or race. A call to suffering is something else that the apostle tells us, but a call to suffer while trusting in the one who's going to come and set all things right and waiting for that day of reckoning. So many ways we could talk about this call, but this is the reality of the hope of God's call. He has called us. We are his. We are his. It's a, there's hope in having been called. That's the idea. Looking back, Paul wants us to know that to know that, to be part of our spiritual DNA. But there's, there's another part to this as you keep reading. So starting again at the verse 18, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. Here's the second one. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? So the, the last one had, had a past reference. This one has a future reference. Uh, our inheritance, that which awaits. Now, I should be just be honest with you at this point and, and say that there, the commentators differ here. Uh, there's two different ways you can go when you look at this phrase, the, the riches of God's inheritance. Who receives it is, is the question. I don't know if you thought about that when I read it, but, but who, and there's disagreement on, on the point. Uh, one way of taking it is that it's, it's God, that it's God is the one who receives the inheritance. And there's Old Testament precedent for that, as many times in the Old Testament, God's people are described as his inheritance, his prized possession. The apple of his eye is oftentimes the way the Old Testament describes God's people. And that is true absolutely forever and eternally 
I would just say it's probably not what Paul means here. Because if you look at the parallel passage in the book of Colossians that matches up very well with what you see in Ephesians, it's not so much uh, at all an inheritance that God receives, but it's one that He bestows. It's one that He gives. So if you want to turn with me to Colossians 1, we're just going uh, two books to the right. Uh, is this, I don't know if it's on the screen or not. Yeah, Colossians 1, verse 12. And again, this is picking up midstream in a longer prayer. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Okay, now just look at that phrasing and you realize, oh, this inheritance, this, at least in Colossians 1, and if you look at the whole of Colossians 1, you realize, well, that's parallel to Ephesians 1. Then you begin to realize, okay, this is not... The, the, the phrasing in Ephesians 1 is not a reference to an inheritance that God receives, one He bestows, one that He gives. One that He gives to who? To us. Paul is here speaking of something that he wants us to know and to take deeply into the bosom of our hearts. The reality that not just as do we take, can we take heart from the hope of God's call, but the riches of God's inheritance. What awaits us? What's in store for us? That, by the way, early in Ephesians has been said to be guaranteed. Guaranteed how? But Well, because we have the Holy Spirit. So we know it's no more is coming. So guaranteed of what? So many different ways to answer that question, but we'll just say, let's start with shalom. Shalom is coming. The restoration of all things. Peace, wholeness, fruition, flourishing of our persons, of ourselves, physically, spiritually, emotionally, everythingly personally, individually, our, our relationships, the mess of ourselves, the mess of our relationships, the mess of this world, everything. Restore. Shalom is coming. We're going to see Jesus, John tells us. We're going to see Jesus face to face. And that vision, that very sight of him, face to face, it's called the beatific vision, meaning it's going to change us. It's going to change us. You're going to be like Jesus. I don't mean like, you're not going to be a God. I don't mean that. But in the terms of your character, mine too, I hope, uh, we're going to be like Jesus. That's inheritance. That's things that are coming. So Paul is praying that we would know this. We would sink our, our, our hearts into this, the hope of God's call, the riches of his inheritance. And there's a third thing, the greatness of God's power. So if the first one has to do with thinking back to the past and the second one has to do with anticipating what's coming in the future, this third one has to do with what now, living in the present. In between, in between, in between. So, again, backing up to verse 18, now reading down to verse 23. This is clearly the burden of, of Paul's heart because it's what he spends the most time on here in this passage. Um, Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. According to the working of his, he piles on the, the power words here. It just, he just, it's like he can't stop in trying to help us grasp this, what, what is he speaking of here? 
According to this power, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills in all, all in all. I'm winded just thinking about this. I mean, this is... Whoa! I mean, the Orion moonshot's got nothing on what's being covered here. So, Paul, Paul is speaking here of the, going back to the beginning of verse 19, the immeasurable greatness of God's power, Greek dunamis. Does that sound familiar? Dynamite. That's where we get our word. So, the immeasurably great dunamis of God at work for you, y'all, because it's plural, youans, if you really need it, for us, for the church, this power at work towards the church, for the church, for the sake of the church. It's astonishing. Now, how is this demonstrated? Three ways. You, you see it here, just for times, like I'll, I'll kind of abbreviate this. Three ways. First, Christ's resurrection. It's made very clear, the demonstration of God's power. You know, uh, we've never been able to stop death. God has. Check the tomb. God has. So it's demonstrated in the res Christ's resurrection, his enthronement, seated by God at the place of highest honor in heaven's throne room forever and ever, far above all powers, principalities, powers on earth and in heaven. His enthronement, his headship, his authority, his ruling over all things. And he says it again there in verse uh, 22. All things, not just all things and the church, but all things for the church. So think with me about this. Everything that's ever happened in the course of human history because it's all things, everything that's happening right now in the news, everything that happened in your life last week and in mine happened under the umbrella of his power for the church. All of it. All of it. Paul, this is, this is the focus of his prayers, that we would grow, that we would know the hope of God's call, the riches of his inheritance, the greatness of his power. Back to, especially, because I, want, I feel like we need to stay here on this power thing for a moment, because that's the burden of the apostles. We probably would do well to stay there ourselves. And thinking about power imbalances, so, so why this is, is so necessary for us, us to hear. Uh, why was this necessary for his, Paul's readers to hear? Well, you think in terms of where they were, li literally, where are they? In the city of Ephesus, which is where the temple of Artemis was. The great, great temple of Artemis. And, and the whole culture, everything is dominated in the shadow of that magnificent edifice, but also infected by the worship of this pagan god if you go back and read Acts, you know when Paul was there planting the church, sharing the gospel for the first time, 
uh, he was nearly killed because of a riot that erupted just simply with a sneeze, a hint of anything that would threaten that. Well, these people live in the shadow of all of that. And you could imagine that they think, they feel like there's a power imbalance. And Paul says, no, no. God's power has been demonstrated in Christ's resurrection, Christ's enthronement, Christ's headship over all things. They, that is not in control, and neither are you. Some of you know this past week, I got laid out flat by a stomach virus. I mean, just the word, I don't know, no details. Usually with illustrations, you give details. I'm not giving you any, but it just wiped me out. It, it, on the one hand, you could say it created weakness. And that it did. It also exposed weakness. It didn't just create something that wasn't there before. It exposed some things that have always been there. I'm not in charge. So when I see my schedule go, and my grand plans for the week go up in flames, that's just a reminder. That's nothing new. That's just a reminder. I'm never in control. Now, that's a form of power imbalance when I think I'm the great one ruling over all things. But we can also have the power imbalance when we think that other thing is the great thing ruling all things. And so it's either my pride or my fear, but either one is a power imbalance. Does that make sense? A, a horrible power. So Paul is saying, look, Look to the outside. Whatever it is that you feel is threatening you, threatens to overrun you, know that no force, physical or spiritual, no temptation, no sin pattern, no part of your upbringing, no, nothing to do with your family of origin, significant as all those things may be, do not hold a candle to the power of the one who has been raised and thrown in his head of all things. So go to him. Go to him. He's the only one, as it says here, with immeasurably great power. Go to him. Oh, but also, don't go to yourself. You know, you, you think you've got the resources. You think you've got uh, the energy and the training and experience and gifts and whatever it may be. Again, you are not the one. Richard, whoever you are, are not the one with immeasurably great power. Where are you to go? To him. To him. Paul is praying that we would know the hope of God's call, the greatness, the hope of God's call, the riches of his inheritance, and the greatness of his power. And we that only comes by this enlightenment. This only comes by this illumination. That only comes by the eyes of our hearts being opened. Do you know that need this morning? Do you know that need? I have this image of myself and, 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 and all of us of, of like looking at a site in a third world country that it looks like is in desperate need of a well for water to be dug. And I'm, please don't hear me saying that's not a necessity of things to put resources in. It, it is. But what I'm seeing, what I'm realizing is that's us. We think we're the ones to go dig the well. We think we're the ones that have got it. What if we're the ones that need the well? 
What if we're the ones that need the digging to be done? What if we're not the donors but the recipients? What if we're in the place of needing God's work and needing revival, needing restoration, needing renewal, needing to hear these answers to these prayers that, by the way, I didn't say this earlier, but you know, the Apostle Paul, this is not just his idea. As an apostle, he is Jesus' appointed spokesman. So if, you, if we want to talk about what the burden of the heart is, this is the burden of Jesus' heart right now, the burden of Jesus' heart right now for us as people, would you see in Ephesians 1. If you want to know how Jesus prays for his people right now, what he wants for you and I, it's right here, expressed through his apostle. Do you hear the possibility then? Do you hear the invitation? Do you hear the desire of Jesus that we would draw near to him? Do you hear his desire for your heart that you would draw near to him? And therein do you hear the invitation and the possibility with that desire that's pouring off the page here in Ephesians 1. It's a beautiful thing. Oh, that we would lean into it. Can we pray? Oh, Lord, whatever our impression of things may be, what it means to know you, whatever our assumptions may have been before we walked into this room, however we have settled for so much less than you intend, would you help us to hear the desire of your heart for us to draw near, that we would go deeper, that we would follow you, that we would walk with you, that the very eyes of our hearts would be enlightened this morning and in the days ahead, that we would know the hope to which you have called us, that we would know what are the riches of our inheritance that you are bestowing upon us as your people, the saints, that we would know what is the immeasurable greatness of your power toward us who believe at work now. Would you help us, oh Jesus, would you be merciful to us and help us go deep? We pray these things in your name. Amen.